This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that hath dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon, since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, and let us ciphers to this great account on your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies whose high uprearred and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Peace out our imperfections with your thoughts. Into a thousand parts divide one man and make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hooves in the receiving earth, for tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping o'er time, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass. For the which supply, admit me, chorus, to this history, who, prologue-like, your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge, our play. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was the opening chorus from Henry V, read by our guest this week. He's an actor, writer and director, best known for his roles in the TV series The Moody's, Rake, Shandon Pictures and Full Frontal. And his new series of the ABC TV show Harrow will be coming out very soon. Recently, for NIDA, he directed The Government Inspector and for Bell Shakespeare, he's appeared in numerous productions over the years, including Comedy of Errors, Measure for Measure, War of the Roses, Antony and Cleopatra, Henry V and The Servant of Two Masters. He's been nominated for numerous Sydney Theatre, Actor and Green Room Awards. It's my great pleasure to welcome Darren Gilshan. And Darren, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thank you very much, Jimmy. How are you? I'm great. So great to have you here, Darren. So great to see you. Now, why do you love this speech, the chorus from Henry V? You know, I think uh, it encapsulates, for me, the the whole meta-theatrical idea of mm. Shakespeare's theatre, in a way. Yeah. When you think, um, you know, this uh, these grand images and grand ideas that he puts at play on a stage, <clears throat> there's only so much the actors can do. There's only so much a set can do. The mm. rest of it is really in the minds of the audience. And I, I think this speech mm. for me is such a wonderful kind of invocation 
of um, the relationship uh, that that has to be at play when mm. theatre is happening. And uh, he, he, he leans across that fourth wall and says to the audience, yeah. come and join in, you're part of this whole experience. And um, without your imaginations, uh, this really is a flat and boring space. Yeah, that's right. And the audience is part of the story. They help to fill it out with their imagination. Mm. Uh, I, I love the images in this speech, um, just setting up the horses and the battlefield and, and, and saying that you can do all of this in your mind. You, mm. you don't need grand sets and, and, and lots of amazing fancy costumes and, and backdrops. You, know, you, you can do it in your mind. Yeah, and there's great alliteration in it like you know when he says think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hooves in the receiving mm. earth just mm -hmm. that that you that you know that repetition of the p sound you can actually mm. see the horse's hooves kind of plucking away at the ground and yeah 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 i really like too that the, my favorite word in is um make imaginary puissance because mm -hmm. that that line is um a, a nine beat line you know where the rest of it's all 10 beat pentamic and Sure. Um, it kind of, it, it's a lovely French word and it kind of, the S's of it, it just flows off into the distance and mm. and, and kind of allows the audience to reflect. It's got some beautiful images in it. And I think that if you look at it, it's, I think the whole speech is six sentences, but mm. the first half, you have the first five sentences and then you have a 16 line single sentence that right. runs from, yeah. suppose, within the girdle of these two walls, which really kind of lets you know the energy of the of the piece you know Shakespeare's um, you know emotion is all found in the energy of the words and mm. and from that moment on when he says let's give it a go let's imagine now that there's two you know the French and English kind of warring and there's horses and this and that and it's mm. it, it has this wonderful sense of galloping momentum right through to the end which I think is such a terrific way to kind of launch into a production and, and bring an audience yeah. into the into the now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love the way that he asks questions in the first half of the speech as well. You know, can this cockpit, it's like a challenge to the audience, can mm. this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Can we cram within this wooden O and so on? Yes, and those sentences uh, all begin in the middle of a line. Right. And, um, yeah. for, for people who out there who are interested, you know, when when you are kind of galloping through the you know the the, the five strong beats of a line mm. and there's strong punctuation in the middle of a line it means mm. that the next thought is pressing because it's still staying in the rhythm so it's not as mm. if you get to the end of a line and it stops and you can take mm. a pause so it kind of goes to show that even the character of chorus is struggling with the idea of can we do this maybe we can't well, maybe <laughs> we can maybe we can't and his own kind of mental kind of gymnastics so uh, uh, you know a, a big part of what you know the energy of the piece and there's been some great interpretations of this speech on stage and on film as well when you did henry v um how was the chorus how, how was this portrayed how did you launch into the world of the play well we did a production joel edgerton actually was yes. it was henry v and uh, vic mm. rooney played the chorus and vic vic is well, was um, you know a very wonderfully kind of Santa Claus esque style bearded character, very warm hearted, <laughs> had a wonderful laugh, big deep voice, um, you know like Father Christmas telling a Christmas mm. story. So I seem to remember when we did it all those years ago, we we all, as a whole company, kind of came on stage together, and stood as a group, and then Vic kind of stepped forward of the group and uh, mm. and began the speech, and we. 
we kind of as as a team kind of sat behind him kind of asking the audience the same questions that he was asking them yeah yeah that's beautiful and and then building the world and I, and I love this idea that uh, you see actors at play actors building the world not pretending that they are the characters but telling the story being the actors that you see the actor before you see the character yeah, it's a great device too because, of course, chorus comes all the way through the play and yes, just yeah. does this wonderful kind of, you know, catch up for the audience and says, right, now, let's jump to here. This is what's going on. These are the people mm-hmm. at play. This is the situation and off we go. It's, it was, it's a very kind of modern device in a way that Shakespeare was playing with. So, Darren, uh, when did Shakespeare start for you when was it that you you kind of you caught fire because i know how much you love shakespeare you've done so much of it in your career but when did it all start well unfortunately i had a, a you know a terrible first experience with shakespeare oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um it was you know at school and i seem to remember we were we were reading macbeth and we only had one complete works of william shakespeare that was right. being passed around from desk to desk as we were told to just read a couple of sentences each. So we didn't even read the characters. We just mm. read bits. And I, I found it quite impenetrable. Yeah. And um, I didn't really, you know, come, you know, come to it straight away. But I guess my first year in drama school right. when I was uh, in Townsville before I came to NIDA in Sydney, I spent a year up there at James Cook University and we did Midsummer Night's Dream and I got to play Puck up there. And... Um, I think mm. the magic of that play um, and the 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 worlds, uh, you know, of the court and the mechanicals mm. and the fairies, it was the combination of all those elements that I, I found um, incredibly exciting uh, as far as, wow, a play can have so much in it. But there was one time I remember where I had a very visceral kind of experience with it when... And it was when we were doing Henry the Fourth, and Joel Edgerton and Richard Piper, mm. who played um, young Hal and uh, Henry the Fourth, and Henry the Fourth, of course, mm. has gotten the crown through ill-begotten means. He's a ter- terrible man and a mass murderer and all the rest of it. And and his sons are, you know, a, a drunk. And um, mm. there's this mm. wonderful scene where you know he calls his son to the palace and says, "I'm dying. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. on my way out here." Uh, uh, I would like you to to take the reins, but you're hopeless. And um, and Henry turns around and basically gives him a mouthful mm. and says, "Well, mm. what do you expect? You know what I mean? I, I, if you're the example of what I, what a king's meant to be, I don't want anything to do with it." And and there was this there was this moment um, while I was watching these guys rehearse where yeah. I was struck with um, by the fact that yes, right yes. through history mm. this relationship between a father and a son yeah, right. <laughs> must have played out thousands and thousands of times you know um with with bad parenting and uh and and mm. it just for me crashed that barrier down of time is irrelevant with shakespeare like shakespeare was writing about <laughs> humanity and everything's changed you know like we've 
got computers mm. and Ferraris instead of horses and abacuses, I guess. But, but one thing that has never changed is is what's inside us and what you know. So that that common humanity is is timeless. And, uh, yeah, and and I love that. Then you can you can find yourself and your situation in there at different times of your life, um, and and you can recognise different parts of your life as you get older and connect with Shakespeare's text in different ways. Have you found that as well as you've gotten older, uh, connecting with different characters and different moments? Oh yes, very much so. You know, as you get older and you're facing your mortality, you suddenly. You know, hear Jacques' speech, and you hear, you know, and you look at, you know, poor old King Lear, and you know, you see the breakdown of family structure, and you know, yeah, completely, completely, yeah. So, when you went to NIDA in the mid to late eighties, was Shakespeare a big part of the curriculum of the syllabus? Was it really focused on, or was it shunted to the side? Because I feel like that shifts and changes at that institution over the years. I had a terrific experience uh i think we did we did a couple of weeks of work um first of all but then i got to do macbeth with john dix who was the director right and uh, we did a very pared back production where we're all on stage the whole time and it was you know you'd stand up and introduce the scene and the act and the characters and they'd run to the center and start acting but um i I very much enjoyed that production I, i I mean, the thing I've always found with Shakespeare is when you first read it, it's impenetrable. You know, I'm not, mm. I'm not the smartest or the sharpest tool in the shed when it comes to gras- <laughs> grasping things quickly. But the more time you spend with it, and the more you do it, the more mm. you fall into it, and and the more nuance and and wonder kind of opens up for you. And I think I've never really found a playwright that you know like a lot of the early tours i did we do 150 shows and you're still discovering things you know right through to the end it's extraordinary yeah. like the, the the depth of genius in it you know? and then when you graduated from nida uh, pretty soon the bell shakespeare company was launched i mean that was the end of 1990 early 91 and in those early years, I think it was 94 or 95, you first joined the company and then were there for over 10 years. What were those early days like uh, at Bell Shakespeare? The, the, the company had just come out of putting on plays in a tent. they just started moving into theatres, started to become a, a serious kind of theatrical force in the country. What were those early days like working with that ensemble? Well, we worked in repertory back then so mm. <clears throat> i think the year before i started they they did three plays at once the year i started we did two i think the first year was macbeth and taming of the shrew but um you know we would be rehearsing one during the day mm. uh and performing the other at night uh, we were changing the set over every couple of days so we'd go yep. into a town and we'd do one play for a couple of days and then do the other one so it was quite rugged and we were doing lots of um, kind of uh, teaching and things like that as well, like special workshops, and we're really mm. launch, try, trying very hard to get the get the name of the company out there because it was very new. The thing I noticed is that most of the performers right. were all quite green mm-hmm. because we hadn't had a tradition of Shakespeare performance in this country, so there was only really yeah. a couple of people in the company that you know, including John Bell, that that really <laughs> knew how to do it. The rest of us yes. were kind of learning yep. on the job, mm-hmm. whereas now I think in this country we have people, you know, who have done multiple productions of Shakespeare. We're also mm. playing around a lot right. back then <laughs> with what, what 
the aesthetic mm. of the company was as far as, you know, what kind of designs we were using. Um, you know, we were swinging backwards yeah. and forwards from more traditional attire to then moving into, yeah, right. yeah. you know, more of a European style of theatre where like when we did our Pericles, we started with no set. We just had a bag of props and costumes and we'd grab what we wanted. So we were kind of taking from companies like Simon McBurney's Teatro Complicite and, you know, Philip Jonte and these these European companies that we were seeing coming over during the Sydney Festival all the time. We were going, oh, how do we create those that style of theatre? So, so I was quite heavily involved in my early time with the company and a lot of the movement um, aspects, you know, the way we'd stage the battle scenes and the way we'd um, we'd do that kind of stuff. And John um, put and cast me as like the movement director on on a bunch of shows. So, so you were doing the fight fight choreography as well. Yeah, right? yeah. Back before we kind of had uh, other people come in and help with that, but um, it was yeah, it was we were we were just looking for for ways to tell stories. Um, because I ended up in the company, I auditioned for the company the very first round because my journey to it was I finished NIDA in 88, then I worked with John Bell on a musical called Big River for over a year and I got to know him well then. He was setting up the company while he was doing that and then we finished the musical and he auditioned uh, and I auditioned but I didn't get in. Um, I pretty much auditioned for the role of the clown of the company. But uh, James Wardlaw got that gig and he was in my year at NIDA as well and <laughs> he ran with it for a couple okay. of years. And then and then I went away and uh, set up a couple of young companies and we were very much exploring uh, black box theatre where, you know, it was just, you know, mm. bodies in space and, you know, narration and physical storytelling and music and, you know, all different aspects of, of theatrical expression. And, and John came along and saw one of the productions that we did and shortly after that he contacted mm. me and said, I really like what you're doing within that company. Would you be interested to come along and and offer those kind of ideas within this company? So so that's that's kind of how I ended up um, in, the, in the company. At Bell. And then obviously throughout your time at Bell, working very physically and in a number of iconic comedy roles, particularly uh, one of the Dromeos in the Comedy of Errors, that production that toured overseas. Now, what was that experience like? And and uh, some people were saying that uh, oh, taking Shakespeare to the UK from Australia is like taking Coles to Newcastle. But, but I think there was a, a really strong positive reaction to the production over there, wasn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had an amazing time. We went to the Bath Shakespeare Festival and I think the, um, for me though, one of the greatest moments was when we were in London, we were invited to, as a company, for a private tour of the recently reconstructed Globe Theatre on the Thames and, and we got to get up on the stage and do the last scene of the Comedy of Errors and there was, you know, there was tour groups coming through that were looking up it's going oh these funny australian speaking <laughs> shakespearean people yeah. but i was leaning up against <clears throat> excuse me i was leaning up against one of the pillars there's two pillars at kind of either side of the stage um listening to anna volska say the last few lines as the abbess saying for 35 years have i gone in travail of you my sons and i was just struck with the fact that wow she's talking about having lost these kids 
for 35 years and now she's found them again. And here we are, 500 years later, doing these words and time is, is a player in that concept. And I was leaning up against the very pillar that Will Kemp or, you know, <laughs> you know Robert Armin or Richard Talton, probably, you know, the Shakespearean sure. clowns, probably leant right mm. up against. And yeah, it yep. was quite a profound experience. But they loved us in Bath. They thought we, I mean, you know, we have a, a very... Well, the way certainly um, Chris Dollery and I were, were doing the comedy within that production was very knockabout and um, very much for the audience and kind of quite um, ribald in a way. And I think the, the English, who have a, a very keen sense of understanding vaudeville and that whole notion of um, panto and and that uh, that notion of comedy, they, they very much responded to our, our knockabout kind of playful, irreverent kind of comedy. Yeah, I'm sure. And there was a lot of magic in that show as well, wasn't there? You're working yes. with the magician uh, Ross, Ross Skippington. Ross Skippington, yes. I got yeah. I got to um, direct all the scene changes with Ross, uh, which was fun because as a magician we were all sworn to the magician's code. But um, when he, he and I had a pre-meeting about how we'd go about that and I said, well, what tricks have you got? You know, And he just looked at me and said, well, what do you want? And I said, I don't know, just you know, make something disappear. And he said, <laughs> yeah. well, what do you want to disappear? And he wouldn't, he yeah. wouldn't do anything for me. So yeah. it was, it was really saying, okay, well, I think we want this to appear there. And then he'd go away and construct the trick, you know. And, and uh, The Servant of Two Masters was one of your, your great uh, iconic performances as well for Bell Shakespeare. What was that experience like in a, in a play that audiences were just falling over themselves into the aisles laughing. I mean, it, it was extraordinary. Yeah, it was an extraordinary production, that one. We, we, the, the group that we had together, we had such a fantastic team of actors uh, mm. and we, we made a commitment to one another from day one to, you know, the 250th show or whatever we did on that. We did three tours of that um, mm. to never do the same show twice. So yeah. there was always right. a wonderful sense of... Um, liveness and because it was you know based on commedia dell'arte and and within that you've got what's known as the lazzi which is the extended kind of exploration through impro of a moment mm -hmm. so all the way through it i got to do lazzi and um we were configured on a stage with chairs either side and the actors could come and sit there and watch the watch the performance when they weren't right. on stage and it was just mm -hmm. so wonderful every time we did that show, people would come on stage. And like no one went off to the dressing rooms because we knew <laughs> something weird would happen, you know. And, and, and it got right down to the, the strangest things happened, you know, one night because we'd mingle in the audience uh, before the crowd, as the crowd came in and go around and introduce ourselves and yeah. stretch on stage and do our handstands and then off we'd go. And, and mm. then halfway through it, a bogon moth flew into the uh, Ros Packer and uh, there was a big moth play going on in Sydney that day and I, my character's starving to death so I'm trying to catch this thing running around the stage <laughs> and it was just it was just off the footlights and I'm at the edge of the footlights gra trying to grab at it and it was it was buzzing in the light of course because you know they like light and and I'm thinking if I get this I'm going to have to eat it but, <laughs> <clears throat> but I, I couldn't get it and it got away. And, it, and then at interval, when we came back out and we were in the audience, some woman came up to me and said, wow, this is the most amazing production. How the hell did you train that moth to do that? <laughs> no. <clears throat> yeah, because there was so much 
um, play and invention <laughs> and improv in it that people yeah. they just thought that was part yeah, it's of just it. Just part you know? of the part of the show. Yeah. yeah. What else have been your most memorable moments uh, doing Shakespeare, working with Bell Shakespeare? Uh, because there've been so many. Working with Stephen Burkoff was an extraordinary experience when we did Coriolanus for the Melbourne yeah, right. Festival for the opening mm-hmm. of that. That was equal parts um, like extraordinary and terrifying. Um, you know, the way mm-hmm. in which he ran mm-hmm. a rehearsal room was kind of military-like in a way. We we had to come yeah, in right. and, yeah. and sit. We all had shaved heads. There was a group of eight of us who were called ensemble and we played mm-hmm. the, about 90% of the characters and then there were six main characters. Mm. Uh, and we, we would have to kind of, once we walked into the space, go silent and just sit and wait for his commands, you know. And mm. Burkoff being Burkoff, he in ha- having played the role that John Bell was playing, he wasn't afraid to get up yeah. and grab a truncheon and demonstrate how to be violent, you know, and how to right. intimidate people. And he also just yeah. had so many extraordinary physical ideas which we as a group just loved to explore with him. So that was amazing, mm. um, particularly on opening night yeah. when at the half-hour call he called us on stage and completely reversed all the blocking um, uh, to open the show, where, which kidding. was a big crowd scene, a big riot, where you know we would run on from different right. sides, and he said, "Oh, let's just swap it over." So we didn't even get a rehearsal at it. We just suddenly had to do it in front of a live audience. You, yeah, you just and we're running it, into right. each other and tripping over, but still doing the lines, and, and that was Burkhoff. He just wanted everything to be so edgy and in the moment. So that was great. Yep. And another, yep. another, I think. M- Another extraordinary experience was when we did Henry IV Part One and Two, which was um, mm. the big rock and roll version, and um, we had a massive mm. skateboard ramp kind of set that you could, when you entered from the top, you pretty much slid down it into the stage, mm. and um, that yeah. was that was just a wonderful. You know, John had done such a wonderful joining of those two plays, and it was such a fantastic. Um, production, Joel Edgerton, that was the, his first one with the company. And then, of course, the next year we did Henry V and continued. And then after that, we then did Henry VI, one, two, and three. So comedy has often been called a very serious business. I mean, the, the timing of comedy is very, very technical. Do you find that in rehearsal or is it much more kind of free and open and improvisational for you? No, it's exhausting. It's it's mm. mathematical in its equations. Yes. It's like a piece of music. It's something that requires multiple um, tries in order to find the right timing. It mm. doesn't happen intuitively. It, it happens intuitively in front of an audience when you're actually performing it. As mm. Rowena Balos once said, who worked with the company for a bunch of years, freaking out within the form, you know, once you've got the form, right. then you, yeah. there's a liveness or, or an anarchy inside it mm. that, that is to do with keeping something in the moment. But in the construction of it, it's mm. very technical and uh, it's, uh, it really requires you to stop uh, as a group and discuss all sorts of things to do with rhythm, to do with yeah. pitch and volume and pace and um, contrast and illogical transition. And there, there's so many ideas that, that really make up comedy. I mean, some people, if you're by yourself you can and you've got funny bones, you can be intuitive, you know, where, whereas as soon as you involve a second person in the equation, yeah. then you've got to observe who's the straight, who's the funny, you know, where's the yeah. bounce, where's the contrast. Where's mm-hmm. the different mm-hmm. world points of view? Where where are you at odds with your own 
character's internal workings as opposed to their external behaviour. So there's, there's a lot of, lot of elements to it, yeah. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. My guest today is Darren Gilshanan. Darren, you've been focusing a lot more on screen in your career recently and much less on theatre. Is that a medium you now prefer? Because I feel like we kind of miss you in the theatre. Oh, thank you. Um, look, I still try to do one play a year. I love live performance because I love... Um, I'm a bit of a control freak and I, and I love that you are the director the editor, um, and you are fully in control when you're in front of a live crowd, whereas television and film is very technical uh, and ultimately is a director's medium. But it is... There's something very um, exciting uh, in television and film because everything's so so fresh and in the moment you know you've only got your scenes the night before everything's half learnt everything's completely yeah, intuitive right. so so you don't get to that eight shows a week thing where you can start to drill in on something and and maybe lose a little bit of motivation you okay. know you have to be yeah. on your toes yeah. and you've got people swanning around you and you know patting your makeup <laughs> down and doing this to your mic and there's so many distractions but when they call action everything goes quiet and it's all mm, up to you yeah. so it, it it's very technical but it's also um it's fantastic when you deliver and you get to the end of the day and you're under time producers love you you know if you're not <laughs> running over time if you can nail it in a couple of takes yeah, it's great yeah. it, it really requires there's a, a whole other world of craft um which is really fun to to, to kind of t you know swim around in and it pays better <laughs> well, yes, yeah, there's no doubt about that for sure. Um, but, but so many actors who go into screen never want to quite give up uh, stage because because that that feeling of liveness, of course, is just absolute gold, isn't it? I oh mean, yeah, that, that's that's what feeds you. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, when you're doing a drama and you can hear a pin drop, or when you're doing a comedy mm -hmm. and you can feel that wave of an audience with you, is something deeply satisfying when. When you're in the middle, you know, you spend the first 15 minutes of a comedy kind of going after the audience and letting mm -hmm. them know who you are and what you're about as a character and what you want. And then when the play starts to work for you and they get to know you and then they can laugh at you and, and then you spend the rest of the time just kind of denying them, you know. It's, <laughs> it's a wonderful, probably one of the best comments I think you can get is when, you, when you've been in a good comedy show and people come up to you afterwards in the foyer and say, oh, that moment, I wanted you to go further. Yeah. And yeah, you say, yeah, good, because yeah. that's what good. I wanted you to feel. <laughs> Leave them wanting more. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Hey, Darren, remember that um, one-man show you did? You developed it over a number of years based on a number of Shakespeare's fools, Shakespeare's clowns. What was the uh, kind of motivation behind developing that show and, and where did it get to in the end? Funny enough, that was, we were talking before about when we went over to the Bath Shakespeare Festival. Mm. I, um, I had been wanting to do a one-man show and I was trying to work out <clears throat> what would be my one-man show. Uh, and after years of playing all the clowns in Shakespeare, I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll kind of piece something together to do with all of the different styles of clowns. And I started working on this, this draft of this show, uh, doing a lot of research, you know, about the the actors that played the clowns and I kept coming across this guy over in London called Chris Harris 
who had this show called Kemp's Jig, which he had toured to like 85 countries over 20 years. And I thought, wow, there's a show there already. Maybe I should just try to track this guy down and ask if I can, you know, uh, buy the rights to his show and, oh, and do see, that yeah. here kind yeah. of thing. So mm-hmm. I went after him and, and I never heard back from him. And uh, I was in Bath doing the Comedy of Errors and uh, after the show, um, when we came out of stage door, there was this guy who came up to me and said, that that was one of the funniest performances. I think you're fantastic, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, thanks, what's your name? Chris Harris was his name. <laughs> And I said, you're kidding me. I said, I've been trying to track you down from the other side of the world. So thus began a friendship that uh, then I, when I came back to Australia, I managed to get um, the Glorious Fellowship grant through NIDA and Bell um, also, uh, Bell Shakespeare also funded it. And then I went back to Bristol to work with Chris for six weeks um, and, uh, and we developed this show together. And then I came back and did another development with John Bell and mm-hmm. Toby Schmidt um, mm-hmm. and uh, as a writer. And, uh, and then eventually I, I, the show turned into, um, it wasn't really just about the clowns. It was, it was basically to do with the battle between good and evil within oneself. Mm-hmm. And I used mm-hmm. the clowns and the beguiling nature of the clowns for the gooden. And the badden was villains. It was, you know, one guy who had been cast to the earth on the back of a meteor who woke up on a tiny little Larson-esque island with one right. palm tree yeah. and, and had to learn what it was like to be human. Uh, but the only language that came out of his mouth just happened to be Shakespeare. Mm. So, so this was a show called Fool's Island, which I ended up then doing for the Tamarama Rock Surfers initially right. and then I did it at Sydney Theatre Company for the uh, education arm uh, for school audiences mm. to come and watch in Wharf 2. Uh, yeah, so it was a long genesis, that show, mm. and a lot of people were involved along the way. But in the end, I always wanted to construct a piece of theatre that was equal parts kind of physical yeah. Um, uh, and also magical and also um, incredibly dramatic and incredibly funny. I just wanted to see if you could get within an hour, if you could take mm-hmm. an audience from a really playful clowning style into dark, dark kind of harrowing tragedy by the end of it. Mm-hmm. And that was my mm-hmm. journey, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I remember I saw it at, um, it was at the Bondi Pavilion. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's so it was absolutely brilliant. Thank you. And, and um, you know, it would be great if you continued on that journey and, and created more of that kind of theatre. Well, thank you very much. I mean, the difference was, I guess, when I started with the company, I was in my early 20s and now I'm 53. <laughs> so mm-hmm, I, I mm-hmm. can't leap as high as I used to, but I can still leap. <laughs> Hey, so you've uh, you've researched and looked into Shakespeare's fools, you know Robert Armin, Will Kemp, and so on. Uh, what I love about reading about those actors is that Shakespeare wrote specific plays and parts for the actor in his company. It wasn't like Armin had to fit himself into a, a mold that Kemp had uh, had created. No. Armin was his own fool. What well, do you think about they're that? They're all the three of them. Richard Tarleton at the beginning was more of an acrobat musician, and Will Kemp was the improviser and uh, mm. Robert Armin was the the poet and the or- mm. orator. So the great 
dark clowns, uh, you mm. know, of, of Lear's Fool and Feste, is said mm. to be the Robert the Robert Armand clowns, whereas the knockabout clowns like Dogbury and Grumio were very much mm. the, the naughty clowns were the ones that used to kind of um, venture and play with the audience a little bit more. Was more your Will Kemp, and then you yeah, had, right. you know like yeah. the earlier you know um, plays with, where there's lots of music and ditties and and tricks. Physical trips was more Tarleton, right. but. Um, I always find it wonderful. I mean, the stories go, you know, they're stories. We don't really have the proof that when Will Kemp was sacked from Shakespeare's company because Shakespeare was becoming such a master playwright, there was no longer room for improvisation around the text. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, in the words of Hamlet, uh, shortly after he was sacked from the company, Hamlet says to the players, let not your fool you know, speak more than is set down for him, for he will cause the <laughs> baron to laugh and set in motion such laughter it will far outweigh the nature of the play, yeah, to right. paraphrase, you know. And, and in a way that was yeah. that was Kemp's death knoll. But the story goes that when he was um, let go from the company, there was virtually a riot in the bear pit from all the commoners as they banged the uh, stage singing, bring back Kemp, bring back bring Kemp. Bring back Kemp, <laughs> yes. And, and then, therefore, he, he embarked on this this story of Kemp's jig, which was a 129-day jig that he did. Um, uh, oh, no, 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 sorry, 126-mile jig that he did in nine days from right. London to Norwich or somewhere where mm. um, we have etchings of, of a community all kind of laughing with their arms out as he leapt over a canal into the next community with their arms out welcoming him. And mm -hmm. it was kind of said to be the first ever big publicity tour, you know, right. where he was yeah, just right. out there yeah. giving the crowd what they wanted. Mm. But unfortunately, then after that, he didn't really, you know, he didn't really go anywhere without Shakespeare's company backing him. And he kind of sank, sank into obscurity, I'm Well, afraid. so the story goes, yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. He was probably playing some cl clubs. Yeah, you know, that's right. I'll be here all week, try the beef. <laughs> Darren, thank you so much. Just before we go, we've got this segment called The Final Five. I'm going to ask five quick questions. Mm -mm. Here we go, number one. As an actor, do you like to be the lover or the villain? Oh, villains? They're much more fun. Sure, sure. What do you think is the most underrated Shakespeare play? I'd say Measure for Measure. Mm. Yeah, it's a tricky one. It's mm. tricky, a bit mm. complicated. Mm. Who's your favourite actor you've never worked with who you'd love to work with? Ooh, uh, Sam Rockwell. Oh, wow, cool. <laughs> What's your dream Shakespeare role you haven't played yet, one you've got your eye on? Iago. Yeah, I, I, I had that in my head. I thought you might say Iago. Yeah, yeah. He's the best of both worlds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, Darren, if you weren't an actor, what would you be doing? I reckon I'd be a gardener. I'd like to grow something. <laughs> You good at it at home? Not at all. But I'm about no. to move into the rainforest next week and begin my journey as a, as someone who grows things. <laughs> Darren Gilshanan, thank you so much for joining me on Speak the Speech today. Thank you, James. It's been my pleasure. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform. <laughs>